Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Psychology of Music podcast, hosted by the York Music Psychology Group, and dedicated to exploring the fascinating fields of music psychology, music cognition, systematic and empirical musicology. My name is Dr. Mimi O'Neill, and I'm thrilled to welcome you, or to welcome you back. The goal is to share our work with each other in the field and also to make these exciting topics more accessible to non-specialist audiences. So, whether you are a researcher, a student, a musician, a music lover, or just curious about the way that we interact with music, you're in the right place. We'll feature interviews with experts in the field who are sharing their latest research findings and providing practical insights into how the new knowledge created can be applied. We are so lucky to be joined by Dr. Kelsey Onderdijk today, a cognitive scientist and musicologist who is currently a visiting researcher at the Music Cognition Group in Amsterdam. Here she's extending her previous work on extended reality and AI on the experiences of those engaging with music through these technologies. Hello. And welcome to the Pompod. And thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to me. When I first met you, you were working as part of a team of researchers who were somehow able to see the potential that the COVID-19 pandemic offered. And while the rest of us were stockpiling loo roll, you quite quickly developed a project to investigate the experience of social connectedness in live streamed concerts. Can you tell us a bit about how that project came about and, and perhaps what you discovered? Yes, of course. Um, but first, I just want to say thank you for having me. I'm very honored, of course. Um, and I think it's a very lovely podcast and you're doing a great job at it. Um, and I just wanted to say that, take a little moment to say that. But yeah, so how did it came about? Um, basically, before the COVID-19 pandemic, I was interested in social connectedness in music interaction in general. But of course, the pandemic happened and I needed to change course a little bit. And there was this conference called Music COVID, where I had a presentation about joint music making online. And somebody else there, Dana Swarbrick, was also presenting on social connectedness. And basically, I contacted her and I said, oh, we're interested in the same things. Would it be an idea to set up something together? Because there is this lovely opportunity coming up, namely the Gentse Feesten. It's a very big festival, and we thought that now that it wasn't happening physically, people would be looking for alternatives to get that experience. So I really saw the opportunity of, okay, maybe we can organize some live stream concerts ourselves. There will be people interested in actually partaking in our study in this case. Um, and so we wanted to look at social connectedness there. And I was also looking at agency. So we put that in there. And I guess I was just very lucky, first of all, to be at IPEM because there's a really great lab over there with a a great infrastructure that actually enabled us to be able to do this. And uh, I had a very lovely colleague, Bafo van Kerrebroek, hashtag shout out. Um, <laughs> but he helped me a great deal with setting up the live streams, organizing every, everything technically. So uh, yeah, it was a really great team that we uh, got to work together uh, to actually make that happen and make it happen very quickly. It was definitely a, a race because we met, the Music COVID conference was in May and then the Gentse Feesten were in July. So really within this two months, two and a half months, we set up the study. Um, and then, yeah, some interesting 
things that we found there, one of the things that I uh, think is really interesting is uh, that we found a correlation between people experiencing loneliness and uh, watching live stream concerts online, but only when watched live and not pre-recorded or watched at a later moment. So we uh, we hypothesized, we, we discussed this a little bit, like what might explain this result? And uh, we thought like, oh, there is some interesting studies that show that parasocial interaction and loneliness are related. So we thought like, oh, maybe people who are lonely are looking for this parasocial interaction with other people or even uh, artists in these uh, live stream concerts. Um, so I think that is quite interesting. And that is actually something that Dana Swarbrick also found in her other study, Corona Concerts. So it, it holds up, <laughs> apparently. It, there there is, really is something there. Which is always really comforting. And actually, Dana will be a, a guest on the podcast later in the series. So we look forward to hearing about those studies then. Um, you also have results that were linked to sort of agency and presence. Can you briefly explain what that means in this context and, and then also what you found relating to these experiences? Yeah, so um, in our case, we for agency, we looked at uh, two types of agency. So you have self-agency, which is like a general sense of control that you have just over your own actions, your voluntary actions. Um, and then you have this idea of shared agency when you are in a joint action. So when you are doing something together that you feel that this that the control over that experience is shared with others. Um, and that is mostly uh, based on the theories by Elisabeth Pachery. And then we looked at uh, physical presence and social presence. And then physical presence uh, relates mostly to actually having a sense of, quote, being there, end quote. And uh, social presence then relates to feeling as if other people in virtual environments are aware of you, as well as you being aware of other people in that environment. And yeah, we definitely found some interesting things related to those uh, concepts. So I think the biggest result was physical presence. So if you are able to promote physical presence, this is actually good for social connectedness with the artist as well as the audience, while improving social presence will likely only improve connected this with the audience. So there is a little bit of a distinction there. And then we found for uh, when we were looking at agency, that shared agency can positively explain connectedness with audience again as well. And then this shared agency was then also uh, correlated with a change in feelings of loneliness and isolation. So that might be like an interesting variable when you are interested in more. Uh, mental health applications, for example. Yeah, really interesting. Um, lots of different fields where that would be really useful. Um, and I believe uh, that this has also led you to sort of consider the experience of virtual reality concerts, perhaps as that way of, of fostering an increased sense of presence. How did you find that this influenced the experience of users? So when it comes to virtual reality, um, it is closely related to this idea of presence. Uh, people who have a virtual reality headset on just experience more physical presence when they are in an environment compared to watching it on a, on a screen, for example, the same performance. Um, and that kind of relates to this VR pioneer called Jaron Lanier. He talks about that VR is post-symbolic communication. 
So you do not need words or you do not need an explanation to talk about the experience. It actually allows you to have that experience. So be present within virtual environments. Um, yeah, so basically because we found that promoting physical presence in these environments was uh, beneficial, we thought, okay, let's look a little bit closer uh, at doing VR research ourselves. And there's this paper that I uh, also uh, did um, together with people from IPEM, and that was uh, also uh, a master's thesis. So shout out to Lise Bruckart this time. Um, but yeah, what we found there is that the amount of presence that people felt was, again, actually connected to the connectedness with an artist, but also these people were more emotionally involved during the performance. So that is quite uh, interesting. Really interesting, really interesting. And and also in addition to the consumption of music um, in a sort of COVID world, socially distanced context, you also explored the impact of this on joint music making, um, which we know was a significant challenge in the sort of 2020, 2021. We're obviously not expecting or hoping for a repeat of that context, but was there anything that you found that made collaborative performance easier that we could perhaps continue to employ now that the pandemic is less of a barrier? So here I unfortunately kind of have to be a bummer <laughs> because um, I think at the moment, uh, or at least when I was doing uh, my study, it, it didn't really work, at least not that the, the ways that people were trying to make music online together at the same time, it was really difficult. A lot of people turned to making music together um, that kind of overcame the issue of latency. So they would record one part, send it to somebody else, go back and forth. And a lot of people actually had uh, great experiences doing this uh, or even made them more productive in their music endeavors. But um, when it comes to actually making music together in the moment, a lot of people were struggling. And I guess it also relates to a lot of people not having the technical capability. I know that a lot of tech people, they do talk about, oh, uh, it's very easy to set up if you just have your audio interface, if you have this and that, you can uh, set it up and then, they have these manuals to control the amount of latency that you have, or at least try to fix that issue a little bit. But I think for a lot of people, even buying an audio interface is already like, oh my God, what should I get? Mm -hmm. um, so I think one thing that should definitely happen there is that if you're a musician or in music school, there should be courses on how to do this. Because if you at least have a little bit of a foundation to get some knowledge about this, it will be easier to navigate within those different platforms that exist. Um, but like one example, like one system that apparently works really well for a lot of people is called Lola, short for low latency. But then I looked on their website and they said something about, um, yeah, what is the type of, uh, they have a whole list of equipment that you should get or that they advise to get. And if you go over the list, it comes down to like 20,000 euros. <laughs> that I think, okay, that's not viable for most people. If you're an organization, yes, I think there are a lot of opportunities there where you can actually facilitate this joint music making for concert experiences or, or those types of things, but not so much for uh, people just sitting at home wanting to uh, connect to other people uh, 
like that. But having said that, it really depends on what instrument you use and what type of music you make. For different types of music, it will have uh, different uh, problems or no problems. Maybe you even like to work with the latency, for example, and see opportunity there. Um, but for most people, it is still quite a problem. I'm sorry. <laughs> We run alongside an online speaker series in which people working loosely in the field of music, psychology and cognition present their work and start a conversation. Please note that these will now be taking place at a slightly later time of 2.30 BST on Fridays. As well as chatting to me for the podcast today, Kelsey will be presenting as part of this Music Cognition Matters speaker series. Can you briefly give us an overview of what you will cover in your presentation? Well, I can't make any promises because I might just change it all up. Um, but at the moment, I plan to uh, talk a little bit more about this idea of social connectedness and parasocial interaction, um, and also the idea of temporal co-presence, which basically uh, is the idea that you share an experience at the same time and in the same place. Um, so I kind of referred to it before, where we found that loneliness was correlated with watching concerts live streamed live and not pre-recorded or at a later stage. Um, but at the same time, I kind of just want to open up a discussion, actually, just generally, what do people expect or what are they thinking about when we talk about virtual musicking? Um, also, because in the study that I talked about the virtual reality concert study, we found that people who attend VR concerts actually do not really attend concerts in physical life. So this kind of opens up the question of does virtual reality attract a whole different crowd? And then when we are talking about organizing our virtual concerts, what do we actually do? Like, are we going to go and take the literature about physical spaces and apply that in, in virtual settings? Or are we going to talk about, okay, what works, what doesn't work in these settings and what type of people want what type of experiences so that it isn't just a... Uh, uh, basically making a digital twin of the physical experience, but it is about creating new experiences. Um, so yeah, I want to talk a little bit about that, give some examples, so that will uh, probably all be in uh, the presentation then. Fantastic, that sounds great. And as I said, if you want to join us for that talk, then you can find the joining instructions on our website, www mus-cog-matters.glitch.me. Invite your colleagues, your students, your friends and family, and anyone who you think would be interested in this subject. So you are currently exploring extended reality and AI technology in your research, and then also their impact on various aspects of the experience of musical interaction. What are you hoping to find in this project? Um, so there are different parts to this. So on the one hand, I'm kind of extending the virtual reality uh, concert experience research, but diving into uh, finding the individual characteristics to optimizing the concert experience for different types of people. Mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand, when looking at the impact of AI technology and uh, XR technologies, for those who don't know, that is like an umbrella term for mixed reality, augmented reality, and virtual reality. 
So there I am actually mostly interested in the promise that is often like talked about while talking about these types of technologies that uh, refer to uh, accessibility and democratization. So I kind of want to know, do these technologies actually facilitate this? Are people actually empowered by using these technologies? And then also relating that back actually to this idea of agency when people are using these technologies. Um, do they actually still feel agency over the musical process or over the musical product? So this is also related to this idea of competence, autonomy, and relatedness by Daisy and Ryan, where I kind of just want to see, like, within that framework, how does the usage of these types of technologies affect those variables? Um, but I'm kind of just figuring it out at the moment. Uh, this is all in the process of being set up. Uh, a collaboration with a, a company that basically provides these programs for artists to explore those technologies a little bit. So I'm planning on jumping in on that, having interviews on artistic expressions and uh, these ideas of agency and empowerment, basically. That's such a noble goal. But in terms of accessibility, there are perhaps hurdles to jump over before it gets to the point where it has a benefit or a positive impact on those aspects of interaction with music. Have you got any sense of whether these technologies are becoming more accessible and available to both users and performers? Yeah, I do think like in some extent that that is already happening. I had a conversation with a musical artist who um, is basically just not able to tour and then making money through touring. So that is just not an option for her. So uh, for her, she is performing in these virtual spaces, promoting her music in these virtual spaces. And that makes the, uh, the life of being a musician, being an artist more accessible for that, uh, for that person. Yeah, that's great. Um, and hopefully it will continue in, in that direction. Um, and then there's also this, this sort of idea that people seem to have a bit of a fear or a distrust of artificial intelligence generally. Do you think that this might actually be a barrier to people engaging with music in this way? So I do think that people who are a little bit afraid of these types of technologies are right to be skeptical, but mostly because we are in a period where it's very much the question of who gets to have power over these technologies. So it's more the human aspect that I think this skepticism is uh, valid, basically. But yeah, in the musical experience, it can be a barrier. There was only recently a study published by Daniel Schenk with a, a lot of colleagues and Amy Belfi, mm -hmm. and that some people uh, might know. And they found that uh, when people were told that music was composed by an AI, they actually liked it less, and they perceived the quality as being lower when than when they were told that a, a human composed the music. So you already see that there's kind of a, a thing going on where it actually, yeah, provides a barrier to the enjoyment of music. But at the same time, there's also research outside of music that shows that the extent to which we humanize AI influences how much we accept the AI. So basically, if we attributed more human qualities, we will accept the AI more. So Probably the more we have AI in our lives and we get more used to it, and if we provided more human qualities, um, yeah, our attitudes towards it will uh, definitely change. 
Um, but I also think that maybe arts and music might be a little bit different because it relates so much to human expression and emotions. But there's also already a lot of AI art that is just selling for millions for a lot of money, basically. Yeah, so time will tell, I guess. What would be your advice to performers or concert curators who were interested in using these technologies in their programming? Um, I think I would just give some general advice. I think people should think more about the why instead of the what. Um, so think about the story you want to tell and how will the technologies that you want to use actually complement that. I have had experiences where technology is applied for the sake of applying technology. And to be honest, I'm one of those people that is not really a technophiliac and then thinks, okay, I'm already bored or this was nice for the first time that you see it. There's this novelty effect, but other than that, it kind of like tires quite quickly. So I think it's really good to think about what is actually a story that I want to tell and then how can I use these different elements to actually apply that within that context? And then one aspect from the research that uh, we've done would then be, okay, how can we then try to connect this to the idea of temporal co-presence so that people really feel we are having an experience shared together so that it creates this uh, shared experience. That's really good advice. Um, and now, if you'll forgive me, in a total change of direction, you've also previously investigated the impact of music on weightlifting. How did that come about? And, and I guess also, what did you find? <laughs> yeah, that is quite uh, funny. So basically, that's not really my research. I just helped out a little bit. It's the research by uh, Valerio Lorenzoni. So again, a shout out. Um, but yeah, what is interesting there is that he developed a system of musical augmentations that when you were doing uh, deadlifts, that the music would distort if your posture was not correct. Uh, and then what he found is that this actually worked just as well as having a professional trainer with you. So it's quite interesting so that you can actually use this musical augmentation to uh, better your posture. Absolutely. It's it's really interesting. And I guess it's maybe more accessible than, than affording a personal trainer. Um, I'm not sure at the moment because we did have like our lab with all the motion capture. So he did apply these motion capture technologies to... Uh, yeah, adjust the musical distortions on. So these motion capture technologies are also constantly developing. So maybe soon you just need a phone uh, directed towards you and it will be able to do this for you as well. Um, but at, at that moment, you need a motion capture system. <laughs> <laughs> so perhaps not so accessible yet then. Look, we've discussed a whole range of projects that you are currently and have previously worked on. <laughs> is there anything else that you're currently working on that we should should be looking out for? Mm, yeah, well, there's one other project that I'm currently working on, um, but I actually cannot say too much about it yet. So maybe after the podcast, you can get the scoop. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there are a lot of things going on with copyright, uh, getting uh, the licenses, um, but it, it will be a really fun study. And there are actually, I would say, some Easter eggs in our conversation about it. <laughs> um, but yeah, at the moment, I cannot say anything about it, but there are, there is stuff in the works. Exciting, top secret, I love that. <laughs> um, 
we'll keep a we'll keep an eye open then and, and see if we can spot them and, and link it back to this very podcast episode. My final question that I ask all guests is what are the most interesting questions that have not yet been explored in music psychology and music cognition? Um, what are the topics that interest you and, and that you think we can still learn more about? I think this is such a difficult question. <laughs> it is a fun question, but also a tough one um, because there is just so much that is interesting when it comes to music cognition. Um, but maybe I would say like, a little bit of backstory. When I studied musicology at the University of Amsterdam, actually what tipped me over to study it there was that they were talking about whale songs. So, and ever since I have been interested in looking into cross-species research relating to music, although it hasn't really been in the foreground of my own research, I think it would be really cool if like in one of the future podcasts, somebody with an expertise in that would uh, come and tell a little bit more about that. Um, but yeah, and of course, I'm lucky at the moment to be at the Music Cognition Lab in Amsterdam, which is Henk-Jan Honing's lab. So uh, I'm sure I will get my fix on the topic uh, from there. That's such a good suggestion. And if there are people out there who want to come and discuss that with me, I'd love to discuss it with you too. Thank you so much for your time today um, and for sharing your work with me. I'm really looking forward to your Music Cognition Matters presentation. You can join us for Kelsey's presentation at 2.30 BST on Friday the 27th of October. All the information can be found on our website, the link for which is in our show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope to welcome you back for our next episode. This episode was produced by Ben Forstick and supported by the University of York Enhancing Research Culture Fund.